Welcome to episode 78, Managed Care 101, Considerations, Ethics, and Requirements. Featuring David Nepesey by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hi there, my name is David Nefesi, and I'll be doing a podcast called Managed Care 101 Consideration, Ethics, and Requirements. This presentation today will inform the listeners, being you, the basic working of the managed care environment. Listeners will learn information about managed care policies to help them develop protocols and processes to thrive in today's insurance payer system of care. The ethical and legal consequences of inadequate insurance protocols will also be discussed. Providers will learn insider perspective about how to navigate the insurance system efficiently and effectively in terms of issues like rate negotiations and the utilization of specific billing codes. Upon completing this course, you'll be able to, as a provider, become empaneled as the participating provider of insurance companies, list various resources, finding appropriate billing codes, and being able to describe the processes for requesting a rate increase. Before I get started, I think it'd be better for you to understand where I am coming from. I currently work as the Vice President of Business Development at Spectrum Health Systems, but the reason I'm doing this is that I previously had worked for 27 years on the insurance side, also known as the payer side. I had worked for the last 13 at a company called Optum, also known as United Behavioral Health, handling the New England market area. But prior to that, I also worked at Pacificare, Magellan, Beacon Health Options, and a local managed care company in Massachusetts called Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, as well as private healthcare systems. Um, again, I think that this will be very helpful to you as providers. My biggest goal is to get away from having what is known as an adversarial relationship between the provider community and the insurance company and seeing how they can work together collaboratively to meet the needs of the members. So with that being said, let's get started. So the first thing I wanted to always uh, discuss is, is how providers really need to know the differences between the various insurance products. I think one of the confusing parts is when a person gets becomes a provider in the behavioral health market, they're really not fully understanding the business associated with that. And one of the biggest issues is really understanding the various insurance products. So the primary insurance product which at least locally in Massachusetts, and I do believe is really uh, something similar across the market, is the primary product is known as an HMO, otherwise known as a health maintenance organization. Another term very similar would be called an EPO, which could be called an exclusive or enhanced provider organization. These are the most restrictive products. Basically what this means as a provider, you would have to be an in-network clinician in order to see clients. With few exceptions, if a provider is not empaneled with the insurance company, you would not be allowed to see such members, maybe with the exception being if you were previously a clinician and the member had switched insurance plans for the purpose of coordination of care, they may allow a single case agreement to be able to continue seeing the client to complete said episode of care, but that is normally not the case. And if I was a clinician, I would not be dependent upon that. Another product, which is more widely known, I do believe in a lot of cases, is the PPO product, which is a preferred provider organization. This does allow clients to go outside of their network and pick a practitioner that is not affiliated with the insurance company. The negative potentially associated with that, there may be a greater out-of-pocket expense where the insurance company might pay, say, 80%, and then 20% would be responsible for that for the client. The positive is you do not need to become empaneled, and therefore you really don't need to follow the guidelines required to be an in-network clinician. Likewise, there's another product known as the POS product, or a point of service. That's a product that's really in between the HMO and the PPO product. These are where providers both have in-network and out-of-network benefits. The last two products uh, that I think people need to be aware of is the Medicaid product as well as Medicare. 
And the reason I wanted to highlight both of those is with Medicaid, if a provider is in the network, they do have different rules, particularly as it relates to no-shows. And I really want to highlight that when a client sees a member who has a Medicaid product, there is a high level of no-show rate. And unfortunately, unlike the commercial population where a person does have the ability to bill the patient for a no-show, with a Medicaid population, you can never bill a no-show. For Medicare, the issues associated with that product is the limitation of the inclusion of providers being able to participate. Currently, Medicare really does require the highest form of licensure. So in Medicare right now, with the exception of a new regulation that went into effect on January 1 of this year, which is the OTP initiative, which is the Opioid Treatment Program, uh, for most products, uh, most benefits, particularly as it relates to straight mental health or straight substance abuse, the only types of clinicians that can see members that have a Medicare product are an LICSW or a licensed independent clinical social worker in Massachusetts. In some other states, it might be a licensed clinical social worker and above. So that would be like a PhD, a PSYD, uh, an MD, a DO, or an RNCS, or ARNP. Uh, they're much tightly restricted. So such licensure types that may be recognized by various insurance panels that do not include Medicare products, like a licensed mental health counselor or a licensed marriage and family therapist, are currently excluded from seeing any client that has a Medi Medicare product. Uh, so that, again, is something to be very important to know. Um, other key terms that I want to make sure you as uh, providers are aware of and being in the managed care environment is really understanding that some uh, terminology that has become more apparent or more critical over the last, I would say, the last five to 10 years. The first one is known as federal mental health parity. And federal mental health parity, I can't believe I'm saying this now, is now over a decade old. It was really started by Paul Wellstein and Pete Dominci, the part of the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act of 2008, rather. And it was basically a federal law that basically prevented group and health insurance issuers to provide mental health or substance abuse benefits that would be less favorable than is currently done on the medical side. And this was done because what was happening was various employee groups that purchased products would exclude mental health and substance use benefits, and they would be treated as a secondary benefit. Uh, and therefore, members were really not having the entitlement or the capability of accessing such services. This was eliminated. What it also did was it also created some, I think, unintended consequences. One of the unintended consequences was in the past, you used to have what would be known as a uh, behavioral health or a substance abuse deductible and a uh, medical deductible. Uh, what happened with this law is they combined them. So it's now one deductible. The potential negative and, again, unintended consequence was prior to 2008, a lot of patients would have, say, a $500 or $100 mental health and substance abuse deductible. Now, with it being combined, you now see deductibles sometimes up to $1,000 or $5,000, very high deductible products. And if a person does not access any medical services, in a lot of cases, uh, this would become a cost prohibitive issue where members may choose not to access their substance abuse and our mental health uh, benefits because they just simply can't afford the high payments. Um, another term you may need to be cognizant of is a self-funded group. A self-funded group is where the information I just previously provided really would not uh, have any impact uh, in the sense that if a person is a self-funded group, they, in, in a number of cases, do not have to abide by the Federal Mental Health Parity Act. Uh, again, this would be uh, some organizations that may choose to put limitations on certain benefits. Uh, and obviously, in this situation that I'd be speaking about, there would be then set limitations on both the behavioral health being substance abuse and mental health. Again, those are a small number, but uh, there is a growing uh, desire, I think, by some employees to make strict limitations because of cost, and they may make cutbacks, and you may see an increase on that. So it's really critical as a provider that one clarifies up front 
what type of benefit the client has. So one should not just assume because they may have a product for which you're in network for that the benefits will be the same. And that's why I always uh, tell providers upfront if they have online capability to always clarify and check the benefits that the client has. And if they're still unsure, they can always call. Usually there's an 800 number they can call to again clarify upfront because you, you as a clinician want to know what you're going to be reimbursed, but you also want to make sure the client knows upfront what kind of cost impact they may have as an out-of-pocket expense. Another key terminology, a term that you should know is uh, CPT codes. The CPT codes are obviously the billing codes that you would be utilizing when you uh, pay, when you submit claims to get reimbursed by the insurance company, or in some cases, even if you do an invoice with the member, so they're cognizant of what they are being charged. Uh, you need to be cognizant of the CPT codes. Please be cognizant, aware that in 2013, a number of the key CPT codes changed. As a person who's, as, who I noted uh, worked on the payer side up to 2017, you would not believe the number of claims that I would see that would be inappropriately identified using codes that are no more effective. Example being a lot of people still use CPT code 90806, which used to be the CPT code for one hour of psychotherapy. That code has now been replaced back in 2013 by CPT code 90834. That is critical that you as a clinician use the updated CPT codes. Your claims will deny and you will not get paid accordingly. In addition, it's critical that you use appropriate ICD-10 or DSM, DSM-5 codes. An ICD-10 code really is the, the code uh, that one would utilize in identifying um, the uh, classifying of the diagnosis that you'd be billing for. And again, it's really critical that you use the five-digit code. Again, if you do not use five digits or four digits, you are, in a sense, allowing the insurance company to deny your claim. And again, what I stated up front is the goal from this is to try to create a non-adversarial relationship between the insurance company and you as the clinician where you guys can partner together for the well-being of the member. So again, you don't want to create excuses for not using the right codes. Uh, again, in 2015, a number of the codes changed where ICD-10 went into effect. You need to use those five-digit codes and make sure you do not use what a lot of clinicians still recognize, which is ICD-9. Um, it's really, really important that you are up to date with all the coding. One of the key things that I noted up front was clinicians need to know, and again, there's really a lack of training in any of the classing, is how to become impaneled. How to become impaneled is when you contact the insurance company and choose to and ask if you can become an in-network clinician. Now, some panels will say that they're closed. Our insurance companies are saying, well, we don't need any additional clinicians. We have enough already in the geographical area. In order to get approved, I always tell clinicians uh, if there is a potentially closed panel, is to make sure you work with various primary care physicians and you um, identify those clinicians up front because there's a greater likelihood that an insurance company or a managed care organization will bring you in network if they know you already have an affiliation with the medical side or a, or a primary care physician being a PCP uh, because they know if there's already coordination of care with the medical side particularly in this time where there's a lot more going on as it relates to medical behavioral integration, which is something that I'll go on later in this presentation, it's really critical that they bring that behavioral health clinician in the network. Uh, one thing that one would want to make sure that they are aware of is that most, most of the insurance companies use some kind of standardized credentialing documentation. Most of it uh, is done through what is known as CAQH. This is a nationally recognized system that providers can do online. They basically fill out information. And they're required to really update that, every, that information every 60 to 90 days to make sure there's no change to the demographic information. Uh, they, they are, their licensing is updated. Uh, if there's any changes, it's critical that that information is noted at that point. One then as a clinician would then need to give approval to the various payers or insurance companies to access that information when they're going through the credentialing process. In addition to that online system, most of the payers or most of the insurance companies also will require that you complete usually an additional 
application, which will allow you to identify all your clinical subspecialties that you might provide, uh, clinical subspecialties, meaning really the populations that you may be serving, an adult, adolescent, child, geriatric, uh, things such as if you if you specialize in certain things like EMDR or, or um, any other type of clinical uh, unique program that you may do. In addition, it also wants to know your hours of availability. Do you work on weekends? Do you have evening appointments? These are about all key things that you would identify usually on this additional application that most of the insurance companies uh, have. Uh, at some point, I, I certainly know that in Massachusetts, which uh, as you probably can tell by my access, uh, my, my accent that I'm, I'm speaking from, um, some of the, with Massachusetts is currently looking at developing an application that would really capture all this information that the various insurance companies require separately, with the idea being by completing one form, uh, you would be able to capture that for all the insurance companies. As of today, unfortunately, despite utilizing CAQH for a bunch of the information uh, that is captured by the payers, uh, most of the insurance companies also require that one cl completes a separate attestation uh, documenting, noting uh, the clinical subspecialty information. Uh, as a clinician, um, there are several ways a clinician can be brought into a, a payer system or insurance network. One is individually, another is through a group, and a third is through what is known as a clinic or an agency. And it's really critical that clinicians understand how that is done. So if you come in individually, are you coming through a group? In most cases, you will be credentialed individually. So each clinician will have to complete the various paperwork, the online CAQH uh, information, and you'll be uh, credentialed uh, to determine that you meet the needs. There's nothing being held against you, no licensing issues uh, for you to be approved. The difference will be how you are contracted. If you're contracted individually, you really don't have any limitations. You can go from various locations. You can practice at different sites. If you are contracted through a group, the group actually owns your contract. So if you as an individual, as a clinician rather, choose to leave the group, you may then lose your in-network status if you try to see the client in a private practice setting. So that's really critical that you understand that dynamic. So if you choose to want to also be able to see people in a private practice, you would need to be contracted individually as well. So do not assume by being contracted through a group that you also have the ability to see a client anywhere that you want. You would be limited to where the group locations are, and you'll be billing under that tax ID number of the group. If you're contracted through an agency, that might be even more different. By being more different, you may not be credentialed at all. They may credential the agency, and then the agency what would would provide what is known as a roster, which lists all the clinicians that work under that agency, but you as an individual would not be credentialed. In addition, you are not, therefore, contracted separately. So if you wanted to go see a client, say, in a private practice setting, your affiliation would not be uh, associated with that payer, and therefore, you would not be able to bill for said services. Again, that's really critical that one understands that. That's a unique dynamic, uh, these three types of affiliations. Uh, it's, it's critical as a provider. You cannot assume because you have in-network status that you're automatically covered in all your uh, practice locations. Um, it's also critical that you know in the various states from a credentialing standpoint, regardless if you are in an individual setting or a group setting, all providers go through credentialing every three years. In Massachusetts, the one primary difference, and I, I'm not sure if that impacts all states, but I know in Massachusetts, if you're a physician, uh, they credential you every two years, uh, including the Board of Registration and Medicine, which is BOM. It's a little bit more intense as it relates to MDs, but all the other clinicians types of behavioral health go through the credentialing every three years. As I noted up front earlier um, in this discussion, it's really critical as a provider that you know how to bill correctly to maximize your billing capabilities. Um, and by that, I, I want to make sure that you as providers do not maximize, uh, do not bill to maximize your revenue, but you do it in a way, obviously, that's in accordance with uh, appropriate billing procedures. So if a person really only sees a client for 20 to 30 minutes, they should not be billing 
CPT code 90834, which is, again, the most common code utilized. It used to be the 90806. And I'm now old enough to know before it was the 90806, it used to be called CPT code 90844, which is a code that goes back almost 20 years. Um, if they really are only billing 20, 30 minutes, though, going back to what I originally stated, you would bill what is known as a 90832. And the reason I highlight that and something we'll speak to later is you want to be able to avoid any type of audits. And if you are utilizing CPT codes that are inappropriate, where you're billing uh, the highest level code that's really not matching up to what your treatment record is doing, uh, is noting you would be at risk for what is known as takebacks. Uh, you would be at risk for going to what is known as waste, fraud, and abuse. And that is one place you do not want to go because if you get audited uh, and you are seen as billing incorrectly, not only do you risk for money being taken back, but your information could be brought uh, up to various boards and you risk losing licensing or being uh, uh, terminated from various um, provider networks. Um, some codes that providers may not be aware of is that when a new CPT codes came out, a, a new code that went into, went into effect, which is 90785, it's for interactive complexity. That is a code that all therapists can build simultaneously as to the, as to the standard codes, the 90832s, the 90791, which is the initial assessment, uh, the, the 90834. Um, that's a code that will be used when a member uh, really might be incapable of speaking. Um, they might be a language barrier issue, so they have another person with them uh, during the therapeutic session. You then uh, have that ability to bill a 90785 in addition to that CPT code. In addition, in 2013, uh, codes that were added were the E&M codes. Those are codes that are for physicians. Uh, that replaced the codes that used to be used by providers, which used to be like the 90805 or the 90807, um, or what used to be the 90862, which used to be the straight med management code for 15 minutes. Um, the E&M codes are codes that a person would be utilizing, which is really in line what is done on the medical side. Again, but it is critical, and I, I cannot tell you with my experience working on the payer side how many physicians bill these codes incorrectly. Um, the codes 99201 to 99215 are the E&M codes. Those codes should be utilized accordingly. If a person is only seeing a, a patient uh, and it's not, and not a um, high intensity, it's really low intensity, uh, they should be using the lower E&M code. And the E&M codes are not time-based. So I've provided the same well, I'm seeing them for 30 minutes, and they're really doing only the medication component. You would, you would not be billing a higher E&M code. If, if you are doing therapeutic components, that's when you can do add-on codes. And that add-on codes only, these add-on codes 90833 and 90836 are only available to providers who prescribe. So those codes can be billed in addition to the 99201 and the 99215. So I, again, I cannot help but emphasize how critical it is as, as providers that you are cognizant of those codes when you bill and be very careful that one does not upcode because as I stated earlier, the last thing you want to do is to be at risk for um, getting audited. Um, another thing that I really want to make sure you as providers are aware of, and sometimes providers do not know up front, this is one of the issues that I have found, uh, is providers need to be cognizant of doing what is, when they're billing is to do, is to make sure that you bill your charges and you don't bill the allowed amount. Why do I say to do that? A lot of times insurance companies on an annual basis will update their fee schedules. So if you were paid in 2019, say $100 for a 90834, and now in 2020, you're going to get paid $110, but you've set up your system to only allow what was the allowed amount, and you have not updated your system from 2019 to 2020, and you bill $100, even though the reimbursement now is $110. The way your contracts are set up is the system will always pay you the lower amount of what is billed. So if you billed $100, you're going to get paid the $100, even though you're entitled to $110. So what I always tell providers to make sure that they do when they set up their system, you want to set up your system for the purpose of billing to what not is what the allowed amount, but what is your bill charges. So if you set up in a private pay situation, you charge $150, 
which is fifty. Uh, in this scenario that I noted, forty dollars more than what the allowed amount is. That's perfectly fine. You're only going to get paid one hundred ten dollars, and you can't balance bill. However, it's really critical that you make sure you put that you always charge more than what the allowed amount is. If you do not change your system, you will get paid less. It's the lesser of language. So uh, when I set up our systems with providers, I always make sure I have approximately a twenty to thirty percent uh, kind of threshold limit where I do not, where I am ensured that I will never charge less than whatever the allowed amount is. Um, lastly, fine limits. As a provider, you are in when you are contracted with various insurance companies. You need to be cognizant of that there are fine limit rules. Now, for most of you, I assume you probably bill weekly or daily. But if you don't and you bill for some reason 30, 60, 90 days out, you have to be careful again what your contract language notes. And that's why it's always critical that you read your contracts. Some of the contracts I know in Massachusetts for Medicaid, uh, you have 60 days up to be able to bill. For most of the commercial payers, it's 90 days. So if you bill on 91 days, you will get your claim denied as over the fine limit. Again, seems like a minor thing, but it happens quite frequently, and the payers are stipulates on that, and they can deny accordingly. So it's really critical that one knows that. Another thing that providers are usually not aware of is providers have to be upfront regarding the knowledge of copayments, deductibles, and I, as I stated earlier, no-shows. So for most of the commercial population, you're going to have to collect what is known as copayments, are deductibles. As I stated up front, if you're seeing somebody for Medicaid, at least in the state of Massachusetts, there are no copays and there usually are no deductibles. But for the commercial population, they do have that. So if a person has a contracted rate, again, going back to what I stated before for 90834 for $100 and they have a 20% copayment, then you would have to collect $20 up front and the insurance company would pay you $80. Likewise, if the person has a $1,000 deductible and it's the beginning of the calendar year, that entire allowed amount of $100 would be denied by the insurance company and you as the provider would need to collect that money. Most of the contracts require you as a provider to first bill the insurance company. You'll get a denial and you have to go and unfortunately collect that money from the member. I realize that puts you in a difficult situation, but that is usually the requirements of the majority of the contracts. Again, that's why it's so critical upfront that you're cognizant of the financial obligations of your members so they know upfront what out-of-pocket expense they may have. I realize this may unfortunately have a determination where they may not seek treatment because it does become sometimes cost prohibitive, particularly if a person or a client has a high deductible product where in a number of cases, the entire payment for that entire episode of care will come out of that member's wallet. Again, something that a lot of times providers are not aware of. They're not trained in this. It's something if you do choose to become in-network, you need to be uh, cognizant of. Another thing providers are not usually trained on is requirement of codes that require prior authorization. Now, as part of the Federal Mental Health Parity Act, you cannot do anything that is more stringent on the behavioral health side than you do on the medical side. So for a number of providers who may have previously had to get authorization when seeking, uh, when uh, providing treatment for outpatient services, a lot of that now has actually gone away because they don't require that on the medical side. So standard CPT codes, codes like 90791, 90792 if you're, if you're a prescribing clinician, 90832, 834, 846, 847, those are family psychotherapy sessions, 90853, groups, those are some of the key codes. Those normally do not require any form of prior authorization. However, codes like testing, which are now like 96130 or 96131, are people who do transcranial magnetic treatment, TMS, 90867 and 90868 or 90869, are providers who look for what known as is an extended visit code, 90836 or 908, I'm sorry, 90837 or 90838. 
those codes may require that you get prior authorization. So again, when one becomes an in-network provider, usually there's a provider manual that will list those codes that may require authorization. As a treating clinician, you need to be aware of that because if you see, think you can see a client and then you treat the client and then you get a denial because you did not obtain the necessary prior authorization, you cannot now, as an in-network provider, now bill the, the patient and, help, and hold them responsible for something that you as an in-network provider were required to do. So again, those kind of things, it's really critical as an in-network clinician that one is cognizant upfront of those billing and authorization requirements. One of the things that I was always asked is what does a clinician do when they're having difficulty getting resolution when they're having billing issues? Uh, who to work with? Again, one thing that I've always highlighted is how critical it is for providers to really partner with the insurance company. So what that really means is when you become an in-network clinician, I strongly suggest as an in-network clinician that you, uh, you develop a relationship with your local provider representative from the various insurance companies from which you're impaneled. By developing such relationships, you usually, if you have a situation where you're not being paid for services that you rendered and you believe you rendered it correctly and for some reason there may have been an inappropriate denial, you want to work with that local provider representative. Again, trying to avoid an adversarial relationship and trying to, again, partner together. If you don't get a response, which I've heard from many different uh, providers and trying to work with payers, sometimes with difficulties, you can always uh, try to elevate it uh, to usually the individual's uh, supervisor. And if you continue to have difficulties, one thing said, I have noted uh, in, in working uh, now on the uh, side of being um, a provider, not anymore working on the payer side, is you can also work sometimes with, if, if, if you're working with what is known as a carve-out, by a carve-out, I'm talking about organizations like Optum, or a carve-out known as Beacon Health Options. Um, if you're having difficulties, you can always work with actually the local insurance company that they've carved out to. So an example that I noted in the state of Massachusetts uh, with Optum, say you're working with a, a Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, you can actually contact Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, which may might be able to, uh, I could say, put a little bit more pressure on the Cabot company in working with you to, to get a response for your concern. If you still have not received any response, uh, at least in the state of Massachusetts, there are other options one can go through. One of the options that a lot of times uh, providers may go through is what is known as the DOI, the Division of Insurance. In some other states, it, uh, it, it goes by similar names, uh, but in Massachusetts, it's known as the DOI. Uh, I think in Maine, it's the BOI, which is the Bureau of Insurance. Uh, in either case, you could work with them, and they will usually send a communication to the, to the uh, payer uh, to get a response. You can also, as a last-ditch effort, go work with what is known as the Attorney General's Office. The Attorney General's Office also, <clears throat> a lot of times, will um, work on your behalf and communicate to the insurance company to respond to your need. Lastly, there are some states when you're not getting a response, and this would be a response not related to the lack of payment, but to a response of usually a utilization review issue, where you can work with a, a, a impartial organization that, at least in Massachusetts, and I know some in other states, was put to really provide assistance to the patient, but in a lot of cases also assist the treating provider. And it's called OPP, which is the Office of Patient Protection. That would be an organization that, again, would work usually on behalf of a member when a service might be denied by the insurance company as saying not meeting medical necessity. Uh, one could go through OPP, uh, and an OPP will usually, if they decide to proceed, will work on behalf of that said member to get approval. I can tell you as a person who, again, worked on the payer side for 27 years, in most cases, if it involves a child, or it involves a case of usually eating disorders, uh, most of the insurance companies know right up front because of the high rate of overturns, they automatically up front will overturn themselves and authorize the services. So again, kind of giving you some, uh, some way an insider's knowledge base of how working, I don't want to say how being the system, but how working with the system. Uh, it usually, again, if you happen to have a client that has uh, an issue with it to a child, and particularly if it's a child with an eating disorder, um, if you usually go through OPP, uh, in most cases, the insurance companies know they're going to be overturned 
they automatically usually right up front will usually overturn the decision and provide coverage. Um, one of the things I always tell providers when, uh, particularly those that are individuals, uh, individually contracted, when they are submitting claims, it's really important that one considers using what I call um, EDI, which is uh, basically uh, an electronic claim system or electronic data information uh, software. I always suggest upfront that providers go away from billing, utilizing paper, and utilize electronic systems. Uh, a lot of the insurance companies have online claim systems where you can go online and put your information in. Again, I strongly recommend that upfront. There's there's two reasons for that one. When you do an online system uh, using 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 the online claim system, um, it's to your advantage to do that because what it does is it uh, is a greater, uh, a quicker turnaround in the claim getting paid. In addition to that, the system um, will usually upfront identify if a provider has missed something on their billing, and it will help them to. Uh, um, identify what they're doing incorrectly so they can get uh, identify that issue up front and then therefore get the claim paid accordingly. Uh, that would be something you wouldn't see when you submit a claim usually through paper. You would only maybe find out after there's been a denial. Uh, other things I always tell people to do is you may want to consider uh, utilizing a vendor. A lot of times it, there isn't a cost associated with that, but the vendors are heavily incentivized in getting you reimbursed because they usually get paid uh, a certain percentage of those claims that they are able to get for you. But again, if you're not adept at uh, submitting claims on your behalf, a lot of times having a vendor to do that can be advantageous to you as, as, as a clinician. Uh, so that's something you may want to also consider looking at. Um, I said up front I was going to make you aware of how to avoid audit risk. Uh, there's really four things that I, I, I really want up front identify. Uh, when I talk about audit risk, these are what is known as usually fraud, waste, and abuse. And this is part of the discussion I had mentioned earlier on when providers may not be, you know, knowingly maybe billing higher level CPT codes than they're actually providing services for, and you want to avoid those. Uh, if you do get audited by the insurance company, you want to make sure you get organized. You yourself conduct your own audit. You may want to recruit your support team really to make sure that they're doing quality assurance, to make sure they're doing that. And you also might want to get support of your clinician. So if you're working with a group and there's potential questions of some coding being billed, you really have to make sure you have your own internal processes in place to make sure that there's you know no risk for fraud, waste, and abuse. If you ever do get identified, it can be very painful as a clinician to have to go through that process. Think, of, think about when you file taxes, if you ever got... Uh, your taxes being audited, uh, you don't want to go back because, you know, if they come, it, it can be very painful, it can be an elongated process. And if indeed you are found guilty, not only would you have to potentially return money to the said insurance company, they will report you uh, to the various agencies, including CMS, which is Medicare, uh, which would mean that you'd be risking audits from other insurance companies as well. So uh, what I can't help but say is when you bill, I always tell clinicians uh, and groups, it's always safer. I don't want to say to undercode, but to make sure that you, you code really to the specific service that you're providing and do and really avoid upcoding. One of the other key things that providers may not be aware of and something that I found out really in 2015 was CMS now requires when you see a patient that you put a start time and an end time in your treatment record. A lot of clinicians just note that they bill a CPT code like 90834 and they say they saw the client for 45 minutes or one hour. That will no more meet the needs if you get audited. It does require that you put a start time in and an end time. And obviously that the time that you know is in between would actually encompass whatever the appropriate code would be used. So again, I can't help but emphasize, you really need to know those rules. You do not want to go through an audit. One of the things that providers have always uh, come to me and asked me uh, are not even were aware of that the fee schedule that you were given does not mean you have to always just accept that as is. In a lot of cases, and I can tell you as a, a person who worked at Optum for 13 years, at least in Massachusetts, uh, for at least over a decade, 
we never increased our rates. So as clinicians, you were just readily accepting the reimbursement that we provided to you. Well, what providers were not aware of is that you can actually negotiate your rates. Now, not in all, in all cases, they will not automatically authorize and provide you a rate enhancement. You need to help justify that. Build a case. And when I say build a case, what I would tell clinicians who may not be satisfied with the reimbursement they're getting is you need to identify the subset of CPT codes that you utilize. In most cases, it's like an initial evaluation, 90791, potentially a 90834, uh, and maybe a 90847, which is family psychotherapy. Those are the, the primary codes the majority of non-prescribing clinicians use. If it's a prescriber, they're going to bill, obviously, E&M codes as well. But identify a subset of the codes, not all the codes, because you don't utilize all the, all the codes. Also, be reasonable when you're asking your rate request. Think about what's going on annually. If right now, in, if, if one looks at CPI, CPI, the consumer price index as it relates to medical cost, has been roughly 2.1 to 2.5% over the past year. So if you come in and you ask for a 10% rate increase, you're probably not going to get that. So if you come in at a reasonable request, and again, I always throw out 3%, you have a greater likelihood of getting approval. I realize it does not seem like a large amount of money, but if you want to get a rate increase, it has to make sense. Now, you do have some ability to get more. One of the things that insurance companies are always concerned about is providers leaving the network. If you have a large population of members you're seeing, so yes, you have seen, you have a, a various insurance company that you might be working with, a payer, where you might have, say, 100 clients that would be impacted should you choose to leave the network, well, that's going to cause an issue with the insurance company because now they need to find other clinicians to be able to potentially continue treatment with those said members. But you as a provider would have to be willing to terminate said contract. And if you were to do that, you know, th there is a great likelihood that the insurance company, because they don't want to risk and having to displace these said members, might be willing to negotiate a little bit more. Again, it's really critical that when one negotiates a contract that you have some type of leverage. Uh, again, another unique thing would be if you have if you work with uh, unique skill sets, so you have a unique subspecialty. You know, you work with children. Uh, you uh, you do American Sign Language. There's a very limited number of providers to do that. Those would be unique skill sets that may differentiate you, which may allow you to identify and be able to get a, a larger. Uh, rate uh, enhancement. Another thing I would know is when you do send in a request for a rate enhancement, you either use uh, an individual's email that you're cognizant and have access to, or you send something certified mail uh, where you get a you know return receipt so you know that that rating request has been received. So therefore, the provider can't come back to you and say, I never, I'm not sorry, the insurance company can say, I never received your notification. I don't know what you're talking about. You have some form of documentation that at least notes that the provider and the insurance company has received your request for your rate enhancement. How do we increase referrals? Uh, I know providers out there, depending upon what market you're in, uh, you know, may have challenges in being able to fill uh, their phone number of hours of availability. Uh, what I tell providers to do is, again, try to do things that would differentiate them from other providers uh, or for immediate access. So if a insurance company uh, is looking to get access to a treating clinician that a provider, you know, will usually be able to have set some time apart, maybe, you know, one hour each day where if a member needs access to services, you've noted to the insurance company, you can provide immediate access. Uh, I would say there's also some providers uh, have the ability to become known as preferred providers where insurance companies, because of your uniqueness skill set, uh, have placed you differently within the directory, online directory system, where you show up at the top of the screen when people are looking for accessing a clinician. Um, another unique thing is offer weekend or evening appointments. If you do either of those, that would be a potentially another way to differentiate yourself in accessing uh, additional um, patients. Uh, again, uh, unique clinical subspecialties. If you do TMH, uh, you know, telemental health, uh, stuff like that. Those might be another way as a treating clinician uh, that you might be able to be identified up front and therefore be, uh, potentially uh, get a greater number of referrals. 
Uh, I know telemental health is kind of a, a, a new uh, thing that's now available to members. Uh, when telemental health was originally uh, done, it was done through CMS. It was really done for people who were in what I would consider um, rural areas where there really wasn't any providers and members were having difficulty in getting access. Uh, that was the original idea of telemental health, but it's been such a valued resource that most of the payers now, insurance companies, um, will allow any type of provider to offer it as long as they're meeting uh, HIPAA-compliant software. And then usually there's a an additional attestation that one needs to complete uh, to be approved as a TMH provider. But it is something that is advantageous and it, it helps you as a provider to decrease overhead. You don't have to have a unique office. In a lot of cases, you can work out of your own home. The key is that you're using HIPAA-compliant software. Um, the CPT codes are usually identical that you build. Uh, the only difference is for some of the pairs, you use a different modifier, which is a, a GT, and for G is in George and T is in Tom. And for some of the other pairs, uh, you don't need to use the distinctive modifier. You just need to change the uh, the place of service. Uh, the place of service for a number of them is now an 02, 02, that you would use. If you use a 02, that would mean you're a talent mental health provider. But again, it's really critical that you have completed the attestation and you've been identified as a, as a provider that offers telemental health. Do not just assume by billing such services, you'll be paid. Because if you do bill with those codes and you bill with the modifier or the place of service code, depending upon what the payer requires, uh, if you're not identified as TMH, uh, you will not get paid. And if you do offer that service and you provide said services and you have not been attested and approved to do it, if you ever get audited, again, then you would risk a take back without because you have not been approved. So again, very key. It's another great benefit uh, as a provider, a way to reduce costs to you, create greater flexibility because you can now potentially do services at all hours of the day. A lot of clients prefer that now because they could just, you know, uh, take the client um, from out of their own home. And likewise, the patient could be out of their home as well uh, using, again, um, any type of HIPAA compliance software. Um, one of the questions I always get is, what about if you're not happy and you want to withdraw from the network? Uh, what do you need to do as a provider? Uh, one of the keys is there's notification requirements. All your contracts will state up front uh, that you need to notify the various insurance companies that you are legally in the network. Most of them have at least 60 days. Some have 90-day notification. Why do they require so much time beforehand? They really want to allow the client the opportunity to decide if they want to continue seeing you thereafter, where they may have to continue if they want to see you. Uh, to do it at an out-of-pocket expense. Also, by providing 90 days, it really does give you as the clinician, hopefully, the opportunity to complete the episode of care. So, therefore, if the member, you know, uh, will have completed the treatment with you, uh, that would be obviously more advantageous to them. Uh, but if for some reason they do need to continue seeing you and it is determined to be clinically appropriate, uh, some of the insurance companies will allow you to do single-case agreements for that member only to continue seeing them and they'll negotiate some way. In some cases, they may ask you to see the see them uh, under the continued rate that you had within your contract. That would be something you'd have to decide uh, as the clinician. Uh, but again, there is something that you could do uh, as a clinician because um, you, do, you do not want to just abandon your member. You want to be able to give them adequate time to decipher if they want to continue seeing you and then what that expense will be, either uh, being paid by the insurance company or as an out-of-pocket expense. As I noted up front, uh, one of the big things that's happening in the insurance industry that's changing is what is known as medical behavior integration. As part of MBI, is, it's really one of the key components is coordination of care uh, is, is between the PCP and the behavioral health provider. Um, one of the things that working in the, the uh, insurance industry for years was when I would go out and I would do uh, just regular audits, I would identify a number of clinicians, unfortunately, did not take the time to communicate to the primary care physician, offer that take sometimes other specialists, if a member was uh, seeing them. Um, a lot of times up front, you as a treating provider have to have the member sign a lease of information, which gives the you approval to communicate to the PCP. Uh, again, I can't tell you that it's very important, particularly if it's a prescriber who may be prescribing medications, their PCP should be cognizant of that uh, to make sure that there's, that there's no duplication of medication. Uh, but even as a, a non-prescriber from a therapeutic standpoint, 
I think it is important that the PCP is aware if the client is in treatment, particularly as I noted up front, with more and more importance being placed on medical behavioral integration, where the medical provider and the behavioral health provider, which for notoriously for the longest period of time, really function in silos, now really are working together for the whole care of the client, where there's both medical and behavioral uh, components being worked together for said client. So again, uh, I can't, can't emphasize the coordination of care and how important that is. Uh, up front, I also want to make sure when a member is uh, going through a provider, the provider really establishes and manages strong treatment records. As I noted up front, you could be audited multiple ways. One would be an audit, which you want to avoid, obviously, is when there's something known as waste, fraud, and abuse, which I discussed earlier on, where you don't want to be known for doing some upcoding up or inappropriate coding. But another is uh, the insurance companies, in order to maintain what is known as NCQA, which is the National Committee of Quality Assurance, which all of the payers have, uh, they are required to randomly audit clinicians, usually 5% of the network every year. You may be randomly selected. You want to make sure that your treatment records are all up to date in case you do get audited by the insurance company. If for some reason you fail an audit, um, it's critical to note that uh, you usually are given a corrective action plan. Usually usually within 90 days, they may reaudit you again. And as long as you pass, it should be a non-issue. But you want to make sure your treatment records are up to date. Because again, if you do get audited and your treatment records are not up to date, uh, you do risk uh, disciplinary action, including being uh, terminated from a insurance company or a payer network. Um, a thing I did want to note, and again, this is specific to Massachusetts, and this is really in reaction uh, to Chapter 258. Chapter 258 was a regulation that was put in place in 2015. It was October 1 of 2015. And this was really uh, in reaction to what happened as it related to the opioid epidemic. Um, the opioid epidemic really hit Massachusetts and the Northeast region very, very hard, uh, really in the, within the last decade. And it kind of reached its apex, I want to say, between 2014 and 2015. And in Massachusetts, one of the issues that had been identified by providers uh, was that the payers, the insurance companies, uh, were in some cases being a barrier to treatment. By means of that, what happened was in a number of cases, if a, if a provider in this situation, a facility may have requested an inpatient treatment for either a detoxification or a residential level of care, if a person may have been identified having an opioid-only issue, uh, in a number of cases, the insurance company would deny that level of care and say the patient could be treated strictly on an outpatient basis, which in some cases may be appropriate for those that may be high-functioning, but in a number of cases, if it's failed, you know, you may want to try something different. So obviously, a detox or a residential level of care may be appropriate. Um, so. In 2015, based upon data, our governor, Charlie Baker, had a bill passed which required that all insurance companies for fully insured Massachusetts CITUS members, that means that both the member as well as the employer reside in the state of Massachusetts and they're fully insured, would automatically be entitled to 14 days of any level of care for substance abuse services. Within those 14, after those 14 days, authorization or additional certification with clinical information would be required. And for those first 14 days, no additional clinical information would be required. However, most of the payers do require that you at least notify them that the patient is inpatient for the purpose of getting your claims paid. Again, that was passed. There's been other laws that have been passed by other states. In Pennsylvania, they have Act 106, which is even more stringent. They actually require the payers to get up to 30 days of inpatient treatment. Um, so again, there, there's been several laws that have been put in place to try to help in decreasing uh, this epidemic. Um, the, I can tell you also working on the payer side, um, like I say, for the previous 27 years, that the state division of insurance, at least twice a year, was regularly requiring the insurance companies to share data to demonstrate that they were not denying care, that members were able to access services uh, and if there was any changes, that that data had to be shared. And if you were in violation, you could be penalized uh, with a very stiff 
uh, penalty, both from a financial standpoint and also temporarily not being allowed to, uh, you know, getting new members. So they, they did put these laws in place. Um, they were continually looking at enhancing the law. The, the, the main reason for this is to eliminate the barrier, which uh, was put in place, as I stated earlier, uh, that members were not able to access services um, during this time period. So Chapter 258 has been a, a very helpful law. Uh, members are able to access services uh, for both detox and residential services, uh, again, if they're fully insured in the Massachusetts slightest clients. Um, the last thing I did want to note, which I think is really important, and I had mentioned earlier, was the whole concept of medical behavioral integration. Um, as a uh, person who now works on the provider side, I constantly are seeing the market changing. And, and the way things have changed is that really in the past, um, I would say over the past decade, um, the concept of integrating behavioral health with medical really is becoming a more uh, apparent and more uh, important process where in the past it really did function as silo. Mental health and behavioral health was kind of one thing and medical was separate. And what you're seeing is there's really three forms of medical uh, behavioral health um, integration. One is where you could become a referral source where you know, you're working with a medical provider who could kind of use you as a preferred provider to contact you if they have a patient that they believe would benefit from some type of uh, behavioral health services, either from a psychotherapy standpoint, maybe medication management or something of that nature. Another, which is becoming more and more uh, important, is what is known as co-location, where you're actually seeing behavioral health providers actually getting maybe one or two days a week where they're actually co-located in a medical provider's office. An example I would say, which is uh, an example that we did when I worked uh, previously with Optum, was where we co-located a behavioral health provider in a, an office uh, where a uh, basically the, the medical provider was treating the patient for cancer. And one of the things that they had identified was the, the patient was quite frequently, unfortunately, missing either their, their chemotherapy appointments. And because what they had found out was the patient was very depressed. So by having the person being able to go immediately and get access to a therapeutic appointment, uh, what happened was the person improved in actually getting there and meeting the chemotherapy uh, appointments. So this is something that's becoming a, a, a bigger, uh, more uh, form of uh, business with medical providers and behavioral health providers working together. And the third one is when they're fully integrated. This is where the behavioral health provider and the medical provider actually work side by side. They may actually go on rounds together. Uh, and this is becoming something that's more and more apparent, uh, particularly as it relates to accountable care organizations. And for those of you that reside in Massachusetts, you know, those would be accountable care organizations would be like organizations like Atrius Healthcare, Reliant Healthcare, Partners. Uh, these are organizations where you have medical and behavioral health providers working within the same office environment 24-7, uh, where they share an electronic medical record, uh, where there's really sharing of information to ensure, again, it's something that I can't help but emphasize, is the patient's whole care, not just behavioral health on one end and medical on a separate. So as you as clinicians are, are thinking uh, and, and, and trying to you know, be thoughtful of what things are taking place for the future. You really need to think about MDI. I really think as clinicians working independently and not being linked to a medical provider or PCP or a large group really may not serve you well in the future. I think the days of providers being independent on their own uh, are, are numbered. Um, again, this is my personal opinion, uh, but I do think that's the way the insurance market is turning and integrating and becoming integrated with a medical provider is certainly, I think, the preferred model moving forward. Um, again, I can't guarantee you these, this is going to happen, but again, and, and following the, and trending how things are working uh, in the Massachusetts market, and I do believe it's going to happen nationally. As providers, it's more advantageous for you to link yourself with medical providers to ensure that the patient's getting all the care that they need, both from a behavioral health perspective as well as a medical perspective. And with that being said, I'm, hoping that, I'm hopeful that the information I provided today will be helpful to you as clinicians. Um, again, I know this is not something that's taught in uh, school for social workers or psychologists, so it's a very difficult market in being able to how to understand working in a managed care environment, but I think it's really critical. And again, what I can't help but emphasize is do not think 
of behavior of the uh, insurance market as an adversarial market, but try to think of them as partners where they can help you so you can be successful in business, but also how you in the long run can be successful in being able to meet the needs of a clients that need treatment for behavioral health services. That being said, I hope this was helpful to you, and I hope to be able to do some of these uh, types of programs in the future. Thank you. Again, this is David Nefesi. Uh, I work again at Spectrum Health Systems. I'm the Vice President of Business Development, and I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.